welcome to this Diversity and Inclusivity Finance Forum podcast. Working for difference, making business better and fairer. The DIFF series of podcasts is aimed at helping people from underrepresented groups get into and get on in the mortgage and protection industry. And to help everyone understand why genuinely prioritizing diversity is good for all of us individually, good for your business, and good for the mortgage market as a whole. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals participating and not necessarily of their respective companies, either past or present. Welcome, everybody, to another Trailblazer podcast. And today I am joined by two wonderful women, Samira Kalik, who is the head of financial strategy and business partnering for Skipton Building Society. Unbelievably, she's had nearly 20 years' experience within financial services and worked in a number of different organizations before Skipton. She's a big advocate of DI and her own personal experience of being a female from an ethnic background. Samira understands firsthand the benefits of diversity of thought and proudly co-sponsors the social mobility agenda at Skipton. And we're joined by Claire Beardmore, Director, Legal and General Mortgage Club. Claire joined LNG after 20 years at Leak United Building Society, where she started at the very ground floor and left as head of sales. Whilst at LNG, Claire's had various positions, including Head of Broker and Propositions and Head of Mortgage Transformation. And L&G are one of the companies that are the benchmark of what, how seriously they take D&I and Claire reports to the magnificent Ali Crosley. Uh, and we will discuss L&G's activities in this space later on. So, Samira, let's get to you. Tell me about Samira Khalid. Tell me about your background and your early years. Background-wise, so my family heritage is Pakistani background, so Muslim Pakistani. And my parents came to this country as migrants back when lots of sort of people were coming over and they didn't speak the language or know anything of the culture. You know, my dad came with my granddad and found work before sort of my mum joined him. So they didn't have any other immediate family. My dad was an only child, he is an only child, and my mum's family were all in Pakistan. But they sort of built these communities with the other migrants, and a lot of them were people in our extended family. And so we lived with the extended family for a long period of time before my dad was able to buy a home of our own. And I'm one of nine siblings, yeah, one of nine. (laughs) My eldest brother was actually nine when they first came into this country, so... He missed a lot of sort of primary education. But education has played a really important role in our story, really, because it's been something that my dad and my brothers really advocated. And the fact that my parents put us all through education is something I'm really proud of, actually. And I'll come back to that. But I suppose growing up, very happy childhood. We didn't have a lot financially, as you can imagine, you know, my working class background. But we had a lot of love. We grew up with our grandparents. And and that's another thing that's really sort of common in our culture. And we didn't have lots of family holidays and things like that. But we certainly didn't feel the absence of those things because we know we'd spent our days playing games that we'd made up ourselves and just a really happy sort of memory of those early years. And what was early school like? Did you go to school with a lot of Pakistani kids or were you one of the minorities there? So primary school, 
it was a lot of Pakistani children because we lived in an area that had other Asian Pakistanis. So the school represented the community that we lived in. So I was surrounded by kind of other Asians at that time. When I went to secondary school, that's when it opened up a little bit more. And that's when I probably made my first kind of friends outside of my own sort of cultural background. So white friends, for example. And that's probably where I first maybe did notice the cultural differences because of having friends from wider circles. And I have always had that even today. I've got friends from all sort of different backgrounds. But yeah, it was secondary school that that really opened up and sort of university after that. That was my really big eye opener. Did going from an environment where there were lots of people that looked like you to an environment where maybe you were in the minority, did that impact on you in any way? Did that sort of make you feel a bit weird or apprehensive? It did at university. I think at school, I was still in the bubble. You know, I still kind of was surrounded by lots of, I suppose we were still in the majority, even though there was a little bit more diversity at my secondary school. University was the different experience for me. I went to Leeds University and I went to study economics. And so that was very much, I was surrounded more by sort of white middle-class people. So suddenly I was very much in the minority on lots of levels. You know, I didn't come from a wealthy background with wealthy parents I was the only Muslim on my course full of hundreds of people and I was the only sort of female Asian and I did notice that it's the first time I, I did sort of feel different because I didn't typically engage in the typical student life if you like which was heavily centered around things like drinking and I don't drink and that's the first time I suppose I found myself explaining those things, you know, so why don't I drink? And I probably didn't fit into that wider environment at university, but I had a close-knit circle of friends that I did connect with and could relate to more because we had those sort of things in common around family backgrounds or value, etc. But I found I stuck to that circle, really. That's not uncommon. Claire, what was your experience? Because, you know, you were born and brought up in Leek. What was your experience with ethnic minorities as you were growing up, or did you not really come across them, as many, many people in the country didn't? Yeah, no, definitely. In primary school, I would say that there was Asian, Pakistani people in our primary school, not many. And and I compare that to my children now in the primary school that they're at, and I think that's different. I think it's noticeably different. When I went to high school, I went to a Church of England high school, actually. But at the school, it wasn't just Church of England, it wasn't just Christians or white people that went to our high school and there was very much more a mix of Muslims and I think that's where we were taught about the education we were taught that it, people just didn't have different skin it was a religion etc and, and I think that's where we understood more and then I didn't go to university so I can't comment from a university perspective so yeah Muslims have always been in my life absolutely the minority I grew up in a very white area and they were the minority. But like I say, I I feel that that's changed in recent years, which I look at my children and and I hear them talk about friends and, and they refer to the friends just by name and normally by name you can work out can't you without even meeting the child if, if that child's likely to be Pakistani or Muslim or from from an ethnic minority and they don't even think there's anything unusual about that it's not even mentioned and I love that I, I quite like that is it 100% different no of course it's not but it's definitely different than I think when I was at school let's move on to the workplace with you Samira and you can tell us what it's like because out of all religious and ethnic groups Muslims experience the highest levels of disadvantage in the labour market. Muslim men and women experience significant pay gaps 
when compared with those who identify as Christian, 16.5% and 22.4% respectively. The level of disadvantage is particularly acute for Muslim women. They are 71% more likely than white Christian women to be unemployed, even when they have the same educational level and language skills. And that's the bit that really blew my mind, 71%. Do you have any perspective or thoughts on why that is? I think more generally, for me, the whole kind of diversity and inclusion piece is around trying to create those level playing fields for everybody and recognising the different talents and capabilities of people, regardless of their background. And that's not just ethnicity or religion or any of those things. It's things like gender play into that, social mobility, all those sorts of things. And I think for women in particular, and sort of Muslim women, for example, I think some of it is being able to see those role models. So looking around and being able to see others that have achieved that. So it's about people feeling like it's attainable and you can achieve it and you can break the barriers, whether they're mental barriers or otherwise, you can achieve those senior positions. And perhaps for women, and again, you know, this isn't just about ethnicity, but that whole piece around balancing kind of work and family life, that is true for all women but I think the cultural angle does add that bit more for Muslim women just because you know the previous generation if you think culturally was very much about those maternal figures in the home if I think about my childhood I grew up with my mum being at home and my mum's home cooking and and all those sorts of things and I I love that you know some of my best memories are around that time and but that's instilled something in me that you know I want to do that for my kids today but it's hard doing it all it's hard working full-time in demanding roles and then trying to be the mum that our mums were in the home. But I think I've had really strong role models, although my mum didn't work, you know, she was busy raising nine children. You know, my sisters, for example, all really strong, independent women in financial roles. And my elder sister was the first in our generation to go on to higher education. It wasn't the kind of done thing in our extended family. But me seeing things like that gave me that confidence that you can build careers and have children. So I've been lucky to be surrounded by that. And I think there needs to be more kind of role models for people to look up to. What's the driving force there, your dad? Or your mum? I would say both in the sense, I guess, of they had different roles in our home. You know, my dad was out being the breadwinner and my mum was at home. Because my dad probably was in the workforce, he did integrate into the culture more. And I think it probably was my dad more around the education side because he spoke the language better. He integrated into the culture a bit more being out in the workforce. And my elder brothers really brought that on as well. You know, I mentioned my eldest brother was nine when he came to this country, but he's really excelled at the education. And then I remember him having conversations with my dad about all of us going on to higher education. So it was that. And I think it's because they recognise the importance of that to go out, get the education and build lives for yourselves, that it was achievable. Going back to you, Claire, we can come on to the kind of things Alan G are doing, but did you feel supported by your parents to achieve your goals, which you chose not to go to higher education, but did Did you see enough of your role models of women doing well in their careers? I don't think I did. I felt supported by my parents, but what I didn't see was my mum going to do a job like I've done. I think she stayed at home to look after I've got a brother and a sister to look after us. And if she did work, she worked part time. And, and I think as growing up, I grew up in a council house where my dad always went to work, but always with that stigma of growing up in a council house. And 
and that's what drove me. It was for me to not ever be embarrassed in the future. And, and that's a ridiculous thing to say in this day and age. But when I was 14, 15, I genuinely felt it. I wouldn't bring people home. I didn't want it. And, and so for me, that was always my why, that my kids, what I can give them is pride and, and real drive and determination. That It's really driven me. I think sometimes it's driven me too hard, but it, I think sometimes I've become almost obsessed with it. But I didn't want them to have that stigma when they were growing up as teenagers. I can really relate to that from the point of view of, for me, the ambition comes from a place where I really want to give back with what I've been given by my parents. I want them to feel proud at the life that they've built for us and the sacrifices that they made for us. For them to have given us this platform to go on have better lives than they did from a sort of security point of view, etc. you know, from a career point of view. So for me, I feel most proud that hopefully they're proud. So I can really relate to that. And I think, Samira, I wrote down when you said that you were the only female Muslim at your university out of hundreds of people. I really don't think you can underestimate what an achievement that is for you. Like to go and and, and it must have been really hard, not because of the colour of your skin, but because of... I feel it when I walk into a room full of men. So it's probably very similar to you from a cultural background. And gosh, that must have really set you up to be a proper tough woman to do. Tough cooking. Yeah, absolutely. You should be so proud of that. And do you know when I noticed it, I was sat in one of my very first lectures in this huge auditorium. And it was a large course. When I say hundreds and hundreds, there were hundreds and hundreds. And I remember just looking around and just trying to find a face that looked similar genuinely that's when I spotted it and I saw there was a chap there another kind of ethnic minority I spotted him but no females and so yeah it stuck with me it did it is interesting isn't it because there does seem to be sort of coming from a Punjabi background very similar to yours my parents came over after partition and my brother was nine when he got here and things I was born here and then again the focus on education was annoyingly relentless but there weren't that many, so I did biochemistry in Manchester, but there weren't that many Muslim women. And of course, there were a number of Indian guys, there was a number of Indian women, but there were no Muslim women. And I think what you've achieved, Samira, is amazing at that time. Do not underestimate, because not only getting there, staying there, finishing it, but it wasn't just your colour, it, it was your ethnicity, because there can be, and I've witnessed this, there can be a certain amount of friction between ethnicities, and there is a certain amount of friction between different ethnicities on the subcontinent, and so being Muslim, there may have been a big old Indian society, but I bet you there wasn't a Muslim women's society at Leeds, no, absolutely not. And as I said, it was multicultural in, in some respects, but as you said, not representative of kind of my background. And I think the biggest challenge for me was feeling comfortable to be myself and not feeling like I have to explain or justify why I might be different in some ways or to feel like you have to conform. I think, you know, that can be difficult when you're in the minority. And, and at first, I think I dealt with that by perhaps just not talking so openly about my life or my values or my cultural background. You know, just things like explaining every Christmas that I don't celebrate it and why. Or for years, I would fast every Ramadan and just not tell anyone that I was fasting. And it was simply because I didn't think people would understand or kind of dealing with that same question every year. I remember people used to say to me, oh, go on, just have something to eat. No one will know. 
just things like that. So it was just easier not to say anything. Now, don't get me wrong, things have, have vastly changed since then. And people are so much more aware. You know, things like Ramadan now in our organisation, it's great. Every year, it's something that is communicated across the organisation. We do things to celebrate it now and, and things like that. So it's fantastic to see the growth. But Absolutely. It's been hard kind of growing up in that environment at times. Samira, I'd like to talk to you about dress and the fact that many Muslim women choose to wear various forms of dress. And I'm a Sikh and I wear a turban. So I'm very aware of the fact that you are occasionally defined by this thing that you're wearing. What is your view on the attire of Muslim women and the impact it can have on their career and in the workplace? I think there's definitely anything that makes you look physically different to somebody else can immediately create a perception. As you've said, the turban does, you know, and in the same way, something like a hijab, which is, you know, the headscarf, for example, I think that can have the same effect. And I think people can see you differently in terms of, you know, if you had... Your statistics at the beginning actually were really interesting in terms of where people have the same skills and capabilities and yet Muslim women are still less likely to be put in certain positions. You know, things like how they look or if they wear a headscarf, I think it can impact things because I think unconscious biases can kick in. You know, I say unconscious bias because a lot of the times people perhaps don't even realise they're making those judgments. And it might just be something that quite naturally a snap judgment is made on something and somebody doesn't even reflect on it. So, you know, if two people are equally good for a job, but one wears a hijab, would it create an unconscious bias? But let me be clear, things are different. I think things are moving on. You know, I look around the workplace at the moment and I see lots of people and Muslim women and and even men, actually. I tell you what was quite nice last Ramadan is I saw quite a lot of male colleagues coming in in traditional wear, particularly on a Friday, you know, there's Friday prayers, etc. They may have wore a mosque hat, for example. And it feels nice to be able to see people feel empowered to do that, but it's still very much in the minority. And I don't know how many people would feel comfortable doing that. And I think if you spoke to a Muslim woman that wears a headscarf, I think they would tell you they feel different or they feel they're treated different. I think it's not just unconscious biases. I mean, I do get there are assumptive biases. So people, quite before anybody gets to know me, they make some kind of assumption that I'm deeply religious and quietly spoken. They soon find out that neither of these things are true. But there is always an assumption there. So Claire, do you think that as an employer, do you think that there's an extra responsibility on you to be able to make yourself look past what they're wearing, just as you would if they had a big nose or red hair or whatever. Yeah, absolutely, so much. And, oh, gosh, yeah, completely. Why would that determine? Obviously, it's a reflection of your religious beliefs and your culture, but why would that mean that you can't perform the job equally as well as me? Who wouldn't wear that? It doesn't, and and absolutely, it shouldn't be a consideration. And, And I'm with both of you. I think there is unconscious bias, but I also do think some people probably will make a conscious decision that that's maybe not what they're looking for but more fool them really we live in a different world don't we and we serve a different set of customers and the world is far more local than it's ever been so culture add for me why would you not want culture add and understand more and be more reflective of the world that we live in so absolutely and that's why I love again going back to that interview process that how you go through the application that's point one but then obviously you would interview what somebody and you would see that 
gosh, yeah, absolutely a massive responsibility to make sure that that should not be a factor. On the plus side, if I was to be interviewing a woman wearing a niqab, one thing I would be thinking of, and that might also be an assumption, is, well, there's somebody that's never going to arrive to work with a hangover. I think it's the same for white girls as well, or people that don't wear the headscarf, is if there's a tattoo or a nose piercing or... Why should that affect the job that they do? It, it shouldn't. It's absolutely not about how you look or it's how you are as a person and how capable are you of that job. I think it is just being open-minded, genuinely open-minded. And I go back to being interested in people's lived experiences and educating ourselves. So if somebody, it's not just a headscarf, the turban's the same, whatever it might be, a hat or any of these sorts of things, but it's just respecting people's backgrounds, respecting their choices and treating them as individuals. That's the key thing for me on any level, whether it's about a job or anything else. I think everybody should be treated with fairness. I agree completely. So let's move on to work now, because I do want to talk to Claire about their targets and the idea of targets and stuff. And I'm sure she's got opinions on them. But so your first job, let's talk about the first job. And was there, when you first got into the world of work, somebody that particularly supported you because a lot of trailblazers normally say yes everything was okay but there was this one person that gave me my first big break did you have one of those when I was thinking about this podcast I was reflecting and I was thinking you know I've never even just not just ethnicity I'm talking about looking up and seeing people that look like you and role models it's not just that I've not seen anybody from an ethnic minority background I've never even had a female boss when I was thinking about it I've always worked for males in my whole career and I remember when I first started working after university and for many years after that I was in a team full of men and again things like I remember the first kind of social we were organizing they wanted to do golf and going drinking afterwards neither of which kind of appealed to me I remember the senior leader of that team at the time saying oh wow you know you can go along and be the trolley dolly or something like that and things like that they sort of stay with you but it's made me I think it's shaped who I am as a leader because I think as a leader you have to genuinely be interested in your people you have to be genuinely interested in their backgrounds their lived experiences because I think you can only really overcome barriers or those unconscious biases if you're aware of them but yeah in terms of your direct question I had a, a two leaders that stand out for me really one in my last employment and then another one in where I currently work that did really just believe in me and, and actually they were the first ones that gave me that confidence that do you know what you're actually really quite good and I've never seen myself like that at all you know I was always my work ethic which came from my dad was just head down and work really hard put the hours in put the graft in and for me that was really normal but for somebody to kind of say gosh you've got talent that was quite well it was quite empowering actually and then you suddenly start to believe it and then you suddenly start to think oh I, I can do that like one step in front of the other and before you know it you know I'm in a senior position and and I look back sometimes I do think how did I get here and I I think it's that self-belief. It's just believing that you can be different. I think that self-belief often comes from somebody else believing in you. Yeah, of course, yeah. Sometimes ambition is frowned on mm. in subcontinental cultures for women. Not for men. Yeah, but, yeah, that's true. Uh, but for women, and then I think ambition comes with self-belief, and it shouldn't be denied, and it, it can be and is very important in building your career. Absolutely. And and I agree with you. My first moment of believing in myself was when 
as you said, somebody else believed in me and, and sort of called it out. And then it can grow from there. But I think then what ignited in me back to sort of Claire's point is that ambition, but it came from a very different place. It came from that place of, I suppose, wanting to demonstrate to others that it is doable. If somebody can look at me and think, okay, you're of a similar background, you're a mum, you stay true to your values, you take care of the home, but you're still working and is even remotely inspired by that, then that's something I'm proud of. And as I said, I was lucky because I did have a supportive environment and I had sisters before me that one's a lawyer, one's a teacher, one's an accountant. You know, they've all got professional roles. So I'm lucky in that sense. I'd be scared to come round to your house. Ah, oh, there's some very intelligent people in my family. <laughs> Claire, what about you? So when you went to the workplace in this all-male environment and we've had a number of podcasts about, I think Samira mentioned Trolley Dolly, what was there this idea that you're a woman, therefore the roles that you're going to take are going to be support or subservient roles? Oh, yeah, definitely, 100%. And I, and I sometimes still feel it. I still feel that there is. Yeah, it's almost like an unspoken assumption that you're not running Alan G Mortgage Club. Why would a woman be running Alan G Mortgage Club? It's been a predominantly male role before. And that, I think it can push you in a couple of ways. It's fight or flight time. And I think that's why we struggle to get so many women into leadership roles because it's tough, it, because it's not actually spoken out, but it's a feeling that you get Maybe it's maybe maybe there is some paranoia there. I, I don't know, but it, absolutely, it's a fight or flight thing. So do you fight and do you go? Do you know what? I will prove you wrong. You will look at me differently one day, and your subconscious underestimate me at your peril. To be honest, and, and time will tell. But I am quite a strong person. I don't think everybody is, or everybody wants that, or to feel like that all the time. And and I think that is a real player into why. There's not enough women in leadership roles. Um, I really do. I must agree with you there, Claire, because I think it's something that I've discussed with a number of people within a DNI space. And it doesn't matter whether you're a woman or whether you're black or whether you're from an, an ethnic background. You're expected to be exceptional to do the same role that a white male is expected to be just average at. And one of the things we need to battle is this requirement for everybody that doesn't look the same as the norm to be absolutely amazingly exceptional. Not everyone who's brown needs to be Lionel Messi. Some of them could just be a normal squad player and have the right to play football. I think it's more than just that. I think it's really having the confidence as a woman to not be an alpha male. I remember when I was given my role as director and Kevin Roberts, who's my line manager, said to me, I really want you to think about how you want to be perceived in the industry. Don't answer me now. So don't talk about it now, but have a think about it. I told him straight away what I wanted to be perceived as. I wanted to be perceived as me and I'm not an alpha male and I don't want to be an alpha male. I'm happy to talk my language and be me, be probably less quiet at first. And that's just me. And I've stuck to that. I'm not alpha male. I don't want to be. You're not beating the table and demanding and shouting and that kind of thing. I and mean, that's exactly how you shouldn't be. So L and G do amazing things and take DNI very, very seriously. And I always think that insurance companies have a much greater challenge in senior leadership with things like DNI because with actuaries, you can't have an actuary that isn't particularly good at maths. And that means that pool of senior talent 
nearly always has to come through university with a maths degree, et cetera, et cetera. And, you, you know, and whether it's women or whether it's women of an ethnic background, STEM subjects still are something we as a society need to engage with women on. But what LNG are doing is amazing. And you have actually got targets for race and ethnicity now, haven't you? Yes, we have. Yeah, it's a new inclusion policy last year and the ethnicity goal is 17% of senior management roles with a minority background by 2027, which is really good to have that in place. And so that's at a really high level. And I've noticed what I love about LNG. One of the things I love is when we're interviewing, so at an operational level, we strip all the personal details out of a CV. So I would never get to see a name or a hobby or where the university was, anything like that that could identify that person as anything other than white middle-aged male and that really makes you look at the facts and the person rather than what it looks at their skill set it looks at what they really are and what value they could add to you and that will feed through won't it so as that happens and more people come into the organization they get promoted they get developed with it from within then it can only be a good thing i love our stance on dni it's managed by our exec which ellie crossley is the chair of that committee and it's absolutely massively important to lng and that's amazing it's brilliant claire can i just ask you i'm just curious how that's sort of gone down in terms of because targets it's a contentious subject isn't it some people really see the benefit of it and why it would be a good thing and other people start that what well, does it achieve the opposite in terms of tick box exercise or like positive discrimination etc how has that gone down internally in terms of you know people's reaction and, and culturally how have you supported that mindset through the organization i'm with you to set a target are you gonna are you if you're a result of that target so for me for example alan g want 50 percent of the workforce as women by 2025 and 40 percent in senior manager roles Am I now a tick because I'm, I don't know, some part of a percent towards that senior manager role? So I think you have to be careful that it's done for the right reasons. And I think that's all about your culture, isn't it, within your organisation? So I look at Ellie Crossley and I look at how she comes across and I look at how passionately she talks about it. She's not ticking a box. It's absolutely genuinely coming from a really good place. And that filters down then to her level, her next direct reports, which filters down to her, the next direct report. And that's where cultures are changed, isn't it? And if you don't fit in, then you don't fit in. I mean, because you are treating it as a tick box exercise. I don't mean you don't fit in because of who you are. It is interesting that I think, from my opinion, sometimes you need to implement a policy, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's a permanent change. And this is where people get confused. You know, it's a tool. And as Dom has often told me, you need the right tool at the right time for the right place. And sometimes that might be a hammer, right? And sometimes that might be a screwdriver. So to kick things off, you might need targets, but that doesn't mean the targets are there forever, right? It might just mean that you need them at that moment in time as a catalyst to drive a culture of change. 
And then eventually you could say there's no need for targets because there's enough people in the pool that we're actually fishing from that are different. We're just going to get the best person and make sure that everybody applies for the job and that, you know, the way you're asking someone to apply for the job isn't in itself discriminatory. And I think a lot of work at the moment is going into that as well. I agree with that. I think by which time you've got something that gives you some guardrails, if you like, what you'd like to hope over time is that it becomes embedded in your organisation such that you can remove limits and targets and things like that. So it it has to be within your culture, within your values, within your behaviours, within your processes all the whole ecosystem has to support that and I think if organizations are really genuine about wanting to be diverse employers then they you know genuinely need to think about the whole ecosystem and making it a part of culture I think that's the thing isn't it that's the crux of it when we stop talking about this it's because we've delivered. It isn't out of the ordinary anymore. I hope when my daughter is in an employment, then we're not talking about this. That actually, it's just normal. It's life. That's it's probably a dream. But you're fifty-two percent of the population. You'd expect representation. It means that fifty-two percent of all positions should be filled by women. That's how it should be. Can we move on? And we've discussed and touched on ethnicity. But what I'd like to talk to you about, Samira, and how you've dealt with it is alcohol. And I'm the first person to admit that I'm a great admirer of the juice of the grape once it's fermented. But we are an industry that likes to party, likes to go out, likes to have a good time. And it is part of what makes it an amazing place to work. But alcohol plays such a big part of not necessarily career building, but the social structure that actually allows you to network and stuff. How have you met with this challenge, Samira, because you just don't drink, it's your religion not to drink and you observe your religion correctly. So what, if anything, have you been met with? It's interesting, you know, early on, you know, the amount of times when I'd say to people, I don't drink, the kind of gasping sort of shock, what, what, you don't drink? What, never? You've never tasted a drop? You don't know what you're missing? Or all those sorts of things. It's never something that's interested me. And I was conscious of it early on because you're right, that's the environment. When I started working, well, even at university, I suppose it was a bit more, it was easier to avoid at university because I just didn't need to mix in that circle. But at work, you're right, you know, social events or networking events, there is always kind of alcohol around. But I think what I've learned is going back to my point about not feeling like you have to conform. So I'm quite comfortable to say I don't drink I don't feel the need to have to pretend and I suppose in a way what's kind of worked for me is I'm a sociable person by nature and so in some ways you know the alcohol helps other people to become sociable and kind of unwind and, and I don't need that you know I'm, I'm quite kind of bubbly and sociable and chatty without it so perhaps that's helped me but I can understand and can see how other people might really struggle because they don't want to be around that you know whether it's going for drinks after work or little things like I've often been given bottles of wine for Christmas and things like that and at first I just was polite and not want to correct people and, and just used to let somebody else take it but but then I used to let people know you know I don't drink and I made a point actually you know when I became a leader and buying Christmas gifts for people I made a point of not buying my team alcohol ever and I would just explain I don't buy it I don't drink it but here's a nice gift from me and do you know what people used to say oh thanks for getting me this or the nice scarf or this and that's really thoughtful actually that just buying a bottle of wine or something so 
I've worked my way around it, but I have had to work my way around it, if that makes sense. I think, again, awareness is changing. But Claire, you've got thoughts on this too, haven't you? I have, yeah. And I don't particularly drink. I have drunk. I just don't. And I'm like you, Samira, I think. I just, I don't feel as if I need it to be more chatty, more sociable. And, and does it come back again for me anyway, to being who I am? I'm not saying that I would never drink, but I think, and going back to what you've just said, Barrett, I think maybe we do miss out on people that don't want to attend events because it is alcohol-based and and an evening-based event. And is there an option for that? And again, look at my own personal circumstances. If we attend an event in an evening, it's often drink fuel. It doesn't bother me, other people drinking around me. It doesn't bother me in the slightest. But I like to go home at night and you can't always do that after an evening event. And I also think for me as a woman, it's really difficult with like lots of my customers are male. It's really difficult for me to say, oh, shall we go out for a drink after work? Or it'd be great to meet you here. I think that's a different relationship than perhaps if I was male. So I do think it's got its place and it's fine and it's everybody to their own. But does it exclude some people from being more sociable? It's changed, hasn't it, massively in the last few years. It, it feels as if it's... You go to events now and I love the fact that you feel safer uh, with all the work that's gone on in the background. I, I love that. I love all the comments that are always made to be respectful and you feel that there's more of a voice in the industry. And, and I, I really like that. And hopefully that'll make people feel more comfortable. But why does alcohol always need to be at the centre of it, I suppose? I think it's a couple of things. One, we're now offering, certainly at our events, a much greater range of non-alcoholic drinks. It's not just, yeah, here's an orange juice or a Diet Coke. There is a big variety of drinks that you can have and enjoy and everybody can enjoy. Well, I've been at events where you don't even get that, Barrett. It's literally water if you don't drink alcohol. So even... It won't be one of ours, that's for sure. No. <laughs> but I can vouch for how chatty you both are. And certainly, Samira, this podcast was dreamt up by the fact you just came at the end of dinner and sat next to me and said, hey, you're the D&I guy. I've got some stories to tell you. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. (laughs) But I do think it's interesting because, as you said, Claire, I understand why people might have it at events, but I have also been to events where the drinking actually spoils things. You know, people get a bit out of control and the behaviour gets a little bit out of control and it can spoil things at times as well. So, I don't know. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's like anything, isn't it, in life? Unless it's for your religious reasons, etc. It's about balance, isn't it? It's about choice. And when it comes back to being able to be who you are, we should never, ever feel embarrassed saying, no thanks, I don't want a drink. It's absolutely my gift to say that, just as it is, it's yours. It's, it, it is anybody's. It doesn't make you a different person because you don't get drunk and it's the same we take Ali Crosley who is one of the most supremely gifted givers of lunch in the planet and she will rarely if ever have more than half a glass of wine at lunch it's just not something she does but she is somebody that half the universe would want to have lunch with as indeed are both of you two so what I'd like to do to wrap up and is just simply say you two are both great role models and you both said, and I'm very, very pleased that you said that you want to be and feel you have to be part of the role models. So I'm assuming that you're both going to be stepping up to be mentees in the Working for Mortgages Mentoring Programme and that you're going to be out there and we're going to be seeing a lot of you in the press at events just being you, which I think is the most powerful message that we can actually send out. My key message to everybody would be just don't ever compromise on who you are. You 
have to believe in yourself and you have to back yourself and not feel like you have to conform. You know, my biggest lesson is be comfortable in your own skin. I'm so proud of my background. I'm proud of my upbringing. I'm proud of my heritage. And I actually use that voice in a positive way now because you never know where somebody else can relate. And I think sharing stories is really powerful. So people need to be brave in, in sharing their stories, really. Thank you both, Samira and Claire, for joining me today. If you have enjoyed this episode and want diversity and inclusion to have as wide an audience as possible, Make sure you share with your friends and colleagues and hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode.